Greetings in the precious name of Jesus, that best and first choice that the best choice you could make is to believe in Jesus Christ. It will change your life. So I appreciate the message this morning, like I said already. You know, as we gather together here week by week, um, some of the things we hear, we, we, we get together for various reasons. One of them is to, of course, edify each other. And one way we do that is to, is, is like Peter said, in the way of remembrance. We remind each other things we already know because we need reminders. We are leaky buckets. Uh, then also, then we also... Part of edification is to expand our minds and think in maybe areas we haven't thought before. And that's part of it too. And I think that's part of what we got this morning. <laughs> Although we did know choices, we knew that already, but it brought us in areas we hadn't thought before. Well, it's a beautiful, cloudy, rainy day, and uh, I trust we can... All stay awake and learn some more. Some of us had busy weeks and um, don't know what your week was. My dad went into the hospital last night with some fluid on his lungs. And um, I have enough of a sickness that I, I shouldn't go in. I won't go in to visit him, at least not right away. It doesn't seem to be serious or critical, but you can definitely pray for him. And um, then my wife is at home with a ser- the most serious case of pink eye she's ever had. And Sarah has started with it this morning, so she's at home as well. And I text a few brothers last evening and said, I think I'll be here this morning, but I, 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 have a, I got a fever and achish, and I'm not sure how I'm going to be this morning, but I, I was better, so... We're thankful that I could be here this morning. So why don't we, before we move on, we haven't stood yet, I don't believe, in singing at all. So why don't we stand for prayer, if you can. Let's stand for prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful this morning for your goodness to us. Lord, you made a choice that affected us for eternity, Lord. Thank you, Lord. As we gather here this morning, I just pray, Lord, for your blessing and your presence to be here. I pray, Lord, you would give us alert hearts and alert minds. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning what your will and purpose is. Lord, you have an eternal purpose. Lord, you have a worldwide purpose. Lord, you have a local purpose. Lord, you have family purposes and individual purposes, Lord, for each one of us. And I pray, Lord, you would speak to us this morning for your, your purpose for us. And I pray you'd instruct us. Be with those that are sick. I pray for my dad, Lord. I pray, Lord, that he would, uh, you would bring healing to him and he would be able to come home before too long. And also my wife and also others that may be sick. I just pray. We thank you, Lord, for the health that we have and we also Recognize living in a fallen world that there is sickness and that is, is a part of your plan uh, 
to uh, possibly to keep us from getting too settled here and uh, not think of our short home, but think of our long home. Lord, we pray you would bless us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> this morning, I'd like to continue on the study of Second Timothy, and you may turn there. Uh, most of you were here last week, not everyone, where I began a study on the last words of the Apostle Paul that we have in the Scripture. His letter to his most faithful disciple, Timothy. And uh, we had the first six verses last last time. But this morning we will actually look at verse 6 and 7 because those two verses are as a unit. But I like to do a little bit of review. Uh, trying to figure out exactly how to do that review. Um, I think I'll just read down the uh, six points that I made at the end as a, as a recap. I think I'll just read that. Um, well, let's read the first seven verses here this morning. Let's just read that and then I'll get into the review. Second Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 1. And Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I might be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. A um, little bit of review. This is what I had the last time, number one, and some of you, I saw it, write it down so you actually have it in your notes, but number one is don't ever lose the wonder of God's immense love and grace by saving you and changing you. And that came out of the promise of light that is in Christ Jesus. There is no other source of life. And uh, number two is with that, we can effectively deal with our own mortality only by embracing Christ who brings us immortality. You're ready to deal with your own mortality when you are able to embrace Christ's immortality that he brings us. Number three was to encourage first and then exhort. That's what Paul did. He gave the encouragement. I am persuaded you have unfeigned faith. And then the first exhortation comes in chapter, in verse six. And then in verse, 
and number four, follow Jesus devotedly with a clear conscience. That's what Paul did. He had a clear conscience, even when he was, even when he was wrong. His conscience was still clear, and and we didn't decipher that the whole way into the ground how that could be. But that's what Paul says. He kept his conscience clear, and then God. He actually says, God saved him in other places. I don't have the verse, but he saved him because he said, I did it in ignorance. But my conscience was clear. And then God came to me because I did it in ignorance and then he saved me. And then in reference to the uh, Lois grandmother and his mother, I have this fifth point. We are responsible for the legacy or tradition that has been handed to us. We are to capture it, keep it, and pass it on. And then number six, as a Christian, you are gifted by God. You have a gift. You are to stir it up. And so that this morning, we will look at verses six and seven, which is, I will read again. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Like I said, we looked at verse 6 last time, some, but since these two verses are a unit, we're going to look at the unit together. So, first of all, is to stir up the gift. Timothy, you have a gift. Stir it up. That gift has been given to you, Timothy. So that you can effectively minister. Now, Paul said you need to stir that up. Now, what is meant by stirring up the gift? Because he had the gift. If you have the gift, isn't that enough? Well, no, it said you need to stir it up. And as I looked at one of the explanations, as I looked in the Greek, it means to fire it up. Well, that's similar, but what do you, what comes to your mind when you hear the phrase, he's fired up? Right now, you probably have an image in your mind what that means. And I'll tell you what my image is. When I think of someone who's fired up, it's not always a completely positive image, okay? I think sometimes of a, maybe a semi-wild, a fanatical, a, uh, an unpredictable individual. Because he's fired up. He's emotionally fired up. Maybe he has a narrow focus and he lacks perspective. But he is fired up. <laughs> and like I said, my perception of such an individual is not completely positive, And I will tell you why. It reminds me too much of some of my own past, <laughs> my own behavior and experience. But I don't think that's what Paul had in mind when he says to stir up the gift that is in thee. 
He told Timothy to fan the flames, fan the flame of that gift. And I think there's a better analogy, and I thought of a, I thought of one, and that's the analogy of bellows. You know what bellows are? Like under the spreading chestnut tree, the village smithy stands. Week in, week out, from morn to night, you can hear his bellows blow and hear him swing his heavy sledge with steady beat and slow. And children coming home from school, looking at the open door, they love to see the flaming forge and hear the bellows roar. Bellows, what do they do? They blow air on the fire. The air acts as an accelerant. It increases the intensity of the fire many times over. You know, I did that very thing that those children did as they looked through the open door. We had a village blacksmith when I grew up. And I stood and I sat and I watched him. It was a horse. He shooed horses there. And they didn't have bellows. I don't know how those old bellows worked. I'm sure maybe some of you know, but he had um, some kind of a, a fan. It was not, not a fan like to blow air around, but it was like an um, enclosed fan that blew air in a duct work. And he had a switch. And you had this fire, this coals and this fire box there. And it was it was hot there. But whenever he wanted to work on a horseshoe, got his horse and he had to, had to adjust those shoes, he flipped the switch and that fire got hot. And he put that shoe in, that shoe got hot and he hammered that thing and after he's done he put it in the water and then he picked it up and they did his shoeing. That was interesting. Very interesting. So, for a blacksmith you need a lot of things. You need the, uh, you need the firebox and the chimney. You need the tools, like the uh, you need the anvil, you need the hammer, you need the pliers, and you need the fire, and you need the fuel. But if you don't have the accelerant like bellows, you just about are worthless. With all that. So, one meaning of stirring up the gift is to do whatever is needed so that the fire is hot enough that the work that needs to be done can get done. And the opposite is to neglect the gift. It's to neglect the fire. It's a neglected fire goes out, goes down, goes out. And a neglected gift will die or eventually go out. So there are two ways to stir that up. One is to, of course, seek that spiritual renewal, spiritual renewal and, uh, and discipline like, um, habits, habits, uh, choices have a lot to do with the fire. If, if you are lax in your spiritual disciplines, whether it's your Bible reading, your prayer time, or uh, keeping your conscience clear and all those things, then, then that fire will go down. 
And the other is to seek to actually exercise that gift, like exercise, like muscles. The more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. So those are the two parts. I'll be talking mostly about exercising this morning. But I want to put us a little bit in Paul's shoes right now. He's telling Timothy to stir up the gift. And Paul is almost done with his ministry. Paul gave himself everything he had. And the infant church had surged forward. And um, and it surged forward even amidst enormous opposition. But it went forward. Now Timothy, now, I mean, now Paul is at the end of his life, and that is the apostolic age, and the post-apostolic age is is uh, dawning. I want to tell you the difference between the apostolic age and the post-apostolic age. I could you could expand on this more, but one of the things is. The apostolic age is when you had um, you had the oral and hands-on instruction from the apostles and others, those that were with Jesus, and there was a transition going to be occurring, and the transition took some time, but the transition was. Let me read it this way. The church would transition from oral and hands-on instruction to scriptural instruction. Because there would no longer be the apostles' age. So, things were changing. Paul knew that. Other things were changing as well. The political season, or scene rather, was changing. Uh, the church faced opposition first by who? The Jews, mostly. And then it faced it by sporadically by the Gentiles when they went into their cities and they were sporadic. But now, where was Paul at? He was in Nero's prison. Now you actually have organized from the top opposition of Christianity, a wholesale. So you have from sporadic to now you have the, the Empire, the ruler that's ruling the empire of the world against Christianity. That was a new thing in the last several years here. And not only that, there were also beginning to come some serious heresies that were beginning to infiltrate the church. It's, it's interesting, if you read Second Peter and Jude... Second Peter chapter two and Jude, which is only one one chapter. Second Peter and Jude read almost the same, but there's one major difference. Peter says these heresies are going to come. Jude says these heresies are here. <laughs> That's a difference there. So at the end of Paul's life, just think of where he's at. Uh, the apostolic age is over, the political scene was changing, and the heresies were mounting. And he was done. He expected to die. And that's probably why Paul seemed to have some grave anxieties about Timothy. Because Timothy was not a Paul. 
I remember the first time I got up to preach back in the early days of Harmony. And I had to come to grips that I was not a Denny Keniston. I was never going to be. <laughs> or a Moe Stolzfus. Those, those are the two preachers in our day. Timothy was not a Paul. And he was never going to be a Paul. But he was going to face the issues without Paul. Timothy had sensitivity and had tenderness of heart. It made him liable to timidity. And maybe despondency. And especially when he's going to be separated from Paul, his mentor, and when he was going to be confronted with sturdy opposition. And for all these reasons, I believe that's why Paul said, Timothy, you got the gift. Now you stir up that gift. The times require it. And if the losses will be huge, in the case of failure. Because Timothy, I mean, Paul is depending on Timothy to take this on. And he tells Timothy later on, you teach men who will teach other men. So Paul put everything he had in Timothy, Timothy to do that and keep on going. And so stir up the gift. <clears throat> Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 17, and this is what he says as he writes the letter, and say to Archippus, <coughs> Excuse me. Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received of the Lord, that thou fulfill it. Archippus, you've received the ministry. Tell him that that what you have received, make sure you fulfill it. And Timothy had this gift. For Timothy to fulfill his ministry, he must stir up the fire. Now, do you have a gift? Timothy faced opposition and difficulty in his ministry. Do you face difficulty and opposition? Timothy faced huge potential for loss or for success. Do you face that? Maybe. What Timothy needed to do to stir up the gift is what we need to do. So let's turn to the best passage that I know of about gifts in this area is Romans chapter 12. So you can turn with me there. We're talk a little bit about gifts. Starting at verse 3, we could start at verse 1 where it talks about some of the foundational things, but we'll start at verse 3. For I say, through the grace given unto me of every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. For we, as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, and he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. 
Now, I would like to read the paraphrase of that passage, at least the verses 6 to 8. That, um, I mean, I could, we could unpack that thing. I'm not planning to do that. I'm just using it as we want to bring it to our level of gifting because we have gifts. Verse 6. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So, if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. <laughs> that cover us. These gifts include speaking gifts, leading gifts, serving gifts, encouraging, supporting. We're all gifted this morning by God. There is something you can do well. And that thing that you can do well is a gift from God. And your gift is needed both in God's people, among God's people, and also to do the greater ministry outside. If you neglect your gift, the fire will go down and you won't be useful. If you exercise it in faith, if you pursue its proper use, it becomes bright and hot. You blow those bellows on it and it becomes very, very useful. So, actively stir up your gift and use it. Now the question might come, why wouldn't, well why wouldn't you do that? <laughs> why wouldn't you use your gift? If you have received the gift, why not use it? Well, you have a gift. I'm sure there's many reasons. I'm not going to explore all of them. But maybe you have exercised your gift and it caused you trouble instead of peace. Maybe the outcome was not as you expected. You exercised your gift and you had a different outcome. Maybe your gift was not appreciated. Maybe it wasn't noticed. And time and trouble sapped out the confidence and faith in your ability, in your gift. That's not good. Let's say it. We can all agree with that. That's not good. Jeremiah had something happen like this. He had, Jeremiah had a unique responsibility to preach the word of God. And, and he did. But what did it, what, what happened? It caused him a lot of trouble. In fact, he preached the coming destruction on Jerusalem, a very, very unpopular message. And the people mocked him. I mean, the, I, what I can imagine is fathers went home and sat at the supper table with their families and said something like this. Do you know what that crazy prophet said today? And they laughed. And so, Isaiah, no, Jeremiah had a little bit of trouble with this. And he thought, you know, 
I, 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 I would like to stop talking. If I would stop talking, this trouble would die down. But he had a problem. Jeremiah had a problem. It was a good problem. <laughs> he was fired up. He said, if I stop talking, then those words will just burn in me. And it's going to be harder to keep it in than it is to let them go and let the people mock. Would to God we were all fired up with our gift like that. Mocking or not mocking, I must speak. So God, so Paul gives this encouragement to Timothy after he stays, tells him to stir up the gift. He cheers him with verse 7. He cheers him with verse 7. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now we will spend the rest of the message unpacking this faith-filled, cheerful statement. The English Standard Version changes the order of the word that brings out a point. I just like to read it because it brings out a point. It says like, for God gave us a spirit. That's the emphasis. God gave us a spirit, but not fear. But he, I'm not reading it, but I'm paraphrasing it. But he gave us the spirit of power and the spirit of love and the spirit of self-control. So, fear. God did not give us the spirit of fear. Fear is one reason why we may not use our gift. So we'll unpack that a little bit. You know, Jesus gave the parable of the stewards where he gave one five talents and he gave another two, another one. Remember that parable? I'm not going to look it up. We all remember it. Two of the stewards stirred up the gifts that they got and they increased it. But one did not. And what did he say when he was challenged about it? He said, I was, what was he? I was afraid. I was afraid. Did that come from God? No. So the first encouragement given to Timothy is don't be afraid. God did not give us the spirit of fear to hold back from exercising our gift and fulfilling our calling. Now, um, I'm going to do a little bit of a diversion here, and we're going to explore explore this one a little bit. We're going to diverge from from fear to another word. What is spirit? When we talk about a spirit of fear, we like to ask, what is spirit? <laughs> uh, the common Greek word for spirit in the Bible is we read it, the Holy Spirit, whether it's the Holy Ghost, whether it's the evil spirit or the spirit of man. The fact is we live in a spiritual world, okay, as well as a physical world. We have 
spiritual influences in our body as well as physical influence. Did I put an extra I in there? No? That's correct. That's right. Okay. Um, well, spirit is not material. This podium is material, and I'd be to be careful or I'll spill this water, which is also material. It's a matter. Your body is a matter. Matt's beating heart, including the electrical part in it that controls it, is matter. Is, I don't know. Is Matt here this morning? Oh, there, there he is. Yes. <laughs> we live in a physical universe of matter, substance, and material. Matter possesses weight, size, color, form. Many times, not all matter has form. Is that right? You tell me if I'm wrong. Because I'm not a scientist. But it has extension in space. It can be measured. It can be weighed. And it can be manipulated in infinite ways within the laws that it operates. The three forms are solid, liquid, and gas. That's what the material universe is made of. And that's what we call science. I found this out more recently. Uh, all matter is mostly empty space. This podium is, I don't know, 99% empty space. Is that right? What for percentage? Huh? Much more than that. Huh? Much higher than that. 99.999% empty space. If you would take all the empty space out of this podium, it would probably be the size of a pinhead maybe? Okay. And if you would fill up a teaspoon of matter that has no space in it, it would weigh tons and you couldn't move it, that little teaspoon. Matter is really amazing, really astonishing. Now, spirit is not matter or substance or material. Spirit is another mode of being. It can't be weighed. It can't be measured. It has no color or form or physical properties. And because of that, it has given rise to what's called naturalism, which says matter, because, because spirit can't be weighed, detected, uh, measured, uh, studied. Uh, naturalism says matter is all there is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be. It's matter. And so a statement such as the overwhelming consensus of science is that ghosts do not exist. <laughs> the reason they say that is another way of saying that the world consists only of matter. We have never found a ghost. We had never studied him in a test tube. Now, I don't know if I need to say this, but I will. You cannot believe the Bible and be a materialist or a naturalist. To be a materialist, a naturalist, you have to reject the Bible and the God of the Bible, which is the Spirit. 
God is a spirit after all, and so is the devil, and so are angels and demons. So, spirit cannot be detected by physical means because it's not material. What a spirit does is it penetrates things. It infiltrates physical substance. It's not limited. Uh, Jesus, after he was resurrected, could come right through that wall. Uh, you can't keep the devil out of your room by locking your doors. Can I say that? He, he, he can come through locked doors because he's a spirit. So spirit is a completely different mode of being. God, being a spirit, made the physical universe. But he made, and he made us, but he made us also spirit beings as well. Our spirit is inside of us. It's a part of our being. And my spirit influences your spirit, and your spirit influences my spirit, and other spirits influence us. Okay? When God says, walk in the spirit, he means to pursue and yield to the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. When he says, be filled with the Spirit, it's not something you can measure. But he means allow the Holy Spirit to fully control you and do not give any room for any other spirit to control you. Compete with him. When you do that, you grieve the Spirit. So, back to Timothy. That was my diversion about what is spirit. Back to Timothy. God did not give you the spirit of fear. The spirit that penetrates you and influences you of fear does not come from me. When I'm fearful, it may have come from my spirit. It may have come from your spirit. (laughs) It may have come from the devil. But it did not come from God. If it comes from the devil, it comes to render our gift either ineffective or compromised. That's what fear is meant to do. Now, when we're talking about fear, it's not the fear of falling or the fear of getting bitten by a vicious dog. That's, that's a natural fear. That, that's a good fear. Now, we could talk about phobias and panic attacks and other irrational fears, and that can have... Sources in physical areas or in spiritual. It could be either. But this morning, it's the fear of fulfilling our responsibility and exercising our gift properly in such a way that pleases God that we'll be talking about. We have more potential than we realize. Each one of us has more potential than we realize. All that we have been given, including the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind, gives us tremendous potential. But fear, what does fear do? Fear cripples us. Fear will limit us. 
This fear that limits us is not the panic kind of fear. It's more the fear of a coward. More the fear like the one who buried his talent. This fear causes us to be indecisive. It makes us timid. It causes us to avoid issues we shouldn't avoid. That really should be addressed. This fear causes us not to witness for the Lord. It causes us to avoid the hot-button, politically incorrect issues that we're involved with. This fear is really bad. Another word for this fear is faint-heartedness. Um, I found this in a commentary. I thought I'd read it. The faint-hearted discourage themselves and others. They anticipate dangers and difficulties, and sometimes, therefore, sometimes they cause them. <laughs> they anticipate failure and thereby often bring it about. It's only by acting and acting vigorously and courageously that we find out the full power of the spirit which we have been blessed with. Now, the opposite of fear is courage. Now, courage, that comes from God. Like, take Daniel's three friends for an instance. I mean, they were called, they wouldn't bow down to this idol. So they were called before the king. And you know what that meant? They they were expecting to go to their death right at that point. Because they're called before the king. They disobeyed the king. The furnace was there. They had the death penalty right there. This was the last day of their life. And the king was, the king was, what did you say? He was really generous, wasn't he? He said, I'll give you another chance. <laughs> and what did they say? He said, don't bother king. He said, we're not going to. There was no fear there. Not a hint. There was courage there. There was dedication. There was a clear conscience. Amazing. We will not forsake the true God to worship your creation, your matter, by the way. Well, maybe it was a spiritual thing, too. <coughs> they were, in an old covenant sense, they were filled with the Spirit of God. Now, I don't know exactly how they felt inside. We know what they did. But, but many times... We have conflicting spirits inside of us. We have both fear and courage. We, we, we have them both. And we reject one and yield to the other. That's one of the decisions that we make, I suppose. <clears throat> we would like to open up to someone else what's really going on inside of us what we are facing, or who we really are. But we are afraid to do so. Afraid of what they will think. Afraid of what they will say. And the fear of man bringeth a snare. We should speak to someone about an issue that concerns us in their life. But we are afraid 
we should reach out to that visitor and assure them that they're welcome, but we don't know what to say. And we're stopped by fear. We fear fully surrendering to God because we're afraid he might ask us to do something or have a life that we don't want. And we're afraid. That's actually called lack of trust. We are afraid to afflict the comfortable and we're afraid to comfort the afflicted. You know, we need the courage of Paul. He said, and we know, this is what Paul said in Romans, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. If God be for us, who can be against us? I, I, as I look at Paul, there has been no one like Paul that I know of hardly. That, that man was astounding. Paul was unstoppable. People who will not have a stopping point will absolutely win over those that have a stopping point. Paul could be stoned, he could be jailed, he could be shipwrecked, he could be beaten, but he couldn't be stopped. The only thing that stopped him finally was Nero's sword, and that stopped his life here. God does not give the spirit of fear. But we fear. We fear lots of things. We fear legalism. We fear stagnation. We fear liberalism. We fear ordination. We fear what will happen in our future. We fear financial hardship. We fear sickness, rebellious children, government conspiracies, Economic collapse. We fear taking the low road lest someone take advantage of us. We fear submitting ourselves in the proper way. And so we need the courage of Paul. We need to uh, recognize fear does not come from God. So what does God give us? Well, he gives us, he gives us the spirit of power. Power, grace, enabled, energy. We're talking about spiritual power here, okay? Supernatural strength. Paul understood this. Do you remember when he had a thorn in the flesh? That thing, that thorn in the flesh really bothered him. I mean... It really, it really was a bother to him. And I think he thought he could be more effective in his ministry if he wouldn't have that thorn. He thought, if my circumstances were different, then I would be more effective. I could do better. I could do more for God if I wouldn't have this bad time. And I'm going to read those few verses here. You don't have to turn there. It's 2 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he, Jesus the Lord, said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. 
Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ, that that same power, power of Christ, may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. And what I get from that is this power does not depend on your circumstances. You may think, as you think of your gift, as you think of exercising and using your gift, you might think, well, I am at a disadvantage. I'm at a tremendous disadvantage. I wasn't born in the right family. I'm not rich. I have these physical disadvantages. I had a bad childhood. And on and on, we can think of whatever your issue is. But this power is not conditional to your situation. Paul did not only accept God's answer, he embraced it. He said, oh, this is the way to real power, to accept the circumstances. And I'm going to talk about the one of my almost favorite song, A Few Verses, by Annie Flint Johnson. Now, this power is the ability or the strength that God gives you. It's not natural, not material power, it's spiritual power. Use your gift in your bad situation. So here's this song. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has filled ere the day is half gone, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. And then the next verse. Fear not that thy needs shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. The Father, both thee and thy load shall upbear. So, God gives us power. Power to encounter foes and dangers. Power to bear up under trials. Power to triumph in persecution. Power to use your gift even though it brings you trouble. God gives this power. This is the encouragement that that Paul is giving to Timothy. Then also God gives us love, the spirit of love. Now we know love comes from God. God is a spirit. And Romans 5, 5 says, Um, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. So we see the love is of God, and we see that it's spiritual. It's come from the Holy Spirit, spiritual love. However, love needs to be defined. You know, there's a statement that says, Just do the loving thing. Excuse me. This is sort of a liberal statement that people that don't want to 
don't want to be bound by the word of God that will say, in a situation, just do the loving thing. That makes practical sense, doesn't it? Just do the loving thing. Love does not always cause us to do the loving thing. So I want to define love a little bit here. The feeling loving thing. Jesus did not come running to Martha and Mary when Lazarus was sick. That was not doing the loving thing in that situation. Love will not cause you to be a helicopter mom or a lawnmower parent, the newest definition. In fact, love will keep you from being that. Now, God has given us the spirit of love. If you don't have love, you don't have anything. The, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is clear with that. If you don't have love, you don't have anything. And and love is patient and love is kind. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't boast. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. Love is not irritable. It's not resentful. All true of love. But love is not unconditional acceptance like many churches signs say nowadays. So, what is love? At a wedding yesterday, they read 1 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians, read Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, the common chapter for marriage, for weddings. And there's one verse that I stuck out to me that I'd like to speak a little bit about. Verse 28, part of it. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. So, you, how do you take care of your own body? That's how you take care of your wife. So it gives you some perspective. Treat your wife as you would treat yourself. Let's walk this out a little bit. Do you allow your body to do whatever it wants to do? How many do that? Some said last evening, and I asked the question, said, yeah, some people do. Even that I question whether they do. They probably have some limits somewhere. We do not allow our body to do whatever it wants, anytime, all the time, and we say, how unloving. I mean, you don't let it do What do you do when you get a splinter? I had one here last week. Do you do the loving thing? It doesn't feel very loving to create all that pain, does it? To get that needle and to dig in there and get that splinter out, that doesn't feel loving. You mean you really jag yourself with a needle? What do you need an operation? And you subject yourself to be put under, and you don't always know whether you'll wake up. Does that seem loving? Do you ever fast? Do you ever go on an extended fast? Sometimes when you go on an extended fast, you feel like you're going to die. 
it seems very loving to your body. I had a friend who had made a commitment he's going to have, uh, I forget, it might have been two weeks. He's going to fast for two weeks. And partway in there, he thought he was going to die. I mean, he really did. And um, he talked to a minister and said to the minister, I had this commitment. Do you think I can break it? And, and um, he got the okay somehow that he can break the fast. And he said he went to the mini market, whatever it was back then, probably the, the Turkey Hill Minute Markets that they had back then, those little ones. And he got a bag of peanuts. And he started eating them, and as soon as he started eating them, he stopped. Something told him to stop. You know, he could have killed himself just about. On an empty stomach, you don't eat for almost two weeks, and you eat the heavy peanuts. That's, I don't know what's happened, but it's not a good thing. But the point is, you can treat your body in ways that seem very unloving. But that's how you love yourself. And that's how you're supposed to love your wife. And by extension, that's how you are to love everybody. Now, here's, here's, here's the balancing. When you are jagging yourself with that needle and you're trying to get that splinter out, it's very, it feels very unloving. But you will not give yourself more pain than is absolutely necessary. And you have a goal in mind. You have a, an, an end outcome that is better than if you don't do anything. So there's a purpose in that jagging. There's a purpose in that jagging, and you don't hurt more than you need to. That is love. Love will discipline your body for God and for yourself. Love will make a careful analysis and get a second or third opinion before you subject yourself to a serious operation, unless it's an emergency. So how did Jesus love? Well, you know, Jesus was a loving person. He was very loving. He's just kind, and he's meek, and he just, people came, he just gave them what they needed. He just met their needs. Well, that's part of Jesus, but here's the other part. Revelation 3.19 it is Jesus talking, as many as I love, I loved, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. And that is true love. Love means you will care deeply about people and it will cause you to respond to their needs even though it is a sacrifice on your part to do so. That's what Jesus did. He sacrificed himself because we had a need. Love will do what is best for them, not always what they think is best for themselves. And this is the spirit that God gives to us in the exercising of whatever gift you have, whether it's the gift of prophecy which can be a pretty blunt one sometimes, or whether it's the gift of serving, or whatever it is, love is needed for the exercising of that gift. We need that spirit. 
And then the last one is of a sound mind. Uh, this is sound mind. It's a spirit of self-control or self-discipline. It's level-headedness. What does God give us? Does he give us level-headedness? What about these wide-eyed fanatics? I mean, I, I won't go there. Moderate as to opinion and passion. Vine says this. It suggests the exercise that self, of that self-restraint that governs all passions and desires, enabling the believer to be conformed to the mind of Christ. Now, God gives me that spirit. And you. That spirit is like, it's getting focused again. It's like a skittish horse that's been spooked a little bit by the traffic. And it's skittish, but it gets calmed down, even though the trucks are still roaring by. And in the middle of traffic, and it feels like, in the, in the, to the horse, it feels like complete chaos around me. Yet that horse has been calmed. That is a sound mind in the middle of chaos. It's able to have or to regain a level head and be calm in the middle of real chaos. And it might be asked whether this sound mind is, is needed for personal use, for myself, to just guide, discipline myself, or whether it is for exercise our gift in others and I would say it's both it, it's the entirety of our of our of both personally and as we exercise it it's the opposite of panic and fear when the spirit of fear threatened to take us then we are given the spirit of a sound mind it'll bring us back to the reality of what we have in Christ The power of the spirit is tempered by love and of a sound mind. Now, Thomas Watson writes this, and he puts these three together. He said, lacking love, power is dangerous. Lacking power, love is ineffective. Love that has power but lacks a sound mind is likely to be wild and fruitless. These three gifts are complementary, all three of them. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but he has given us the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. So, just a little bit of review here in the message here. The gifts that you have, you are to improve them, whether it's one or more, by boldly and diligently exercising them. The fears you have, recognize they're not from God and reject them. Power Love and a sound mind. God gives these three. And like that old 
cliche says, get under the spout where the glory comes out. This is glory. Having the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind from God, that's glory. And get under the spout where it comes out, because that's what we need. We meet men and women like that today. Those who have hope only in the immortality of Christ that they are participating of. Those that have unfeigned faith. Those that accept their gifts and apply the bellows to it. And those who reject the devil's spirit and are filled with power, love, and a sound mind. So I don't know if anything new came out this morning or whether this is a reminder. But may we take Paul's admonition to Timothy and apply it to our lives. May God bless you.